entitled my sermon, I Will Sing. And when Santia saw it, she made a comment. I don't know why she would make a comment, as she did. We all like music, even those of us who can't sing, couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. We still love music. I remember when Zachary was nothing but a little infant, and I would sing to him, and he would go to sleep. And I would jokingly say to Chris, my wife, Chris, when I sing to Zachary, he goes to sleep. And she looked at me, lovingly said, Ralph, he probably goes to sleep to get out of the pain <laughs> of hearing you. We love music. Some of you love salsa. Some of you love rap. Some of you love rock or blues or some of us even love country music occasionally. We sing for different reasons. Sometimes we sing because we're happy. Sometimes, if you listen to country music, we sing because we're miserable. <laughs> Sometimes we don't know why we sing, it just comes out. We sing to remember the good times and to forget the hard times. But one thing for sure, singing changes our moods as well as reflects them. What we sing can have a tremendous influence on how we think and how we behave. There's something about music and songs that is able to penetrate our hearts and our minds in a way that, that prose or just logic doesn't seem to, to get to us. And so today, as we finish up with the series in Exodus, we're only going through chapter 15. Yes, there are far more chapters but we're stopping here and, and looking at chapter 15 today. Chapter 15, for the most part, is a song. Some call it the Song of the Sea, because it took place after the, the Red Sea incident. Others call it Moses' song. But it's the oldest hymn in the Bible. It was composed by Moses after God's victory at the Red Sea. And it tells the story of God's victory over the Egyptians there at the Red Sea. I think it sets forth the standard for musical worship. Won't you think, if you would, they say that probably there were two million to two and a half million people who came out of Egypt. Can you imagine hearing two hundred, or two million? People singing to the Lord? Two million. I've been down to a Moody Pastors Conference and I've heard probably around 2,000 men, pastors, praising God. Powerful. It gives you chill bumps. I've been to Promise Keepers where I've heard 50 to 75,000 men singing, but two million? It must have been a powerful thing. Israel worship Yahweh. Acknowledging him as their powerful redeemer, the deliverer. And this song looks at who he is. It looks at what he did for them. It celebrates his many attributes. 
going into detail about his deliverance. Moses first, in the first couple of verses, declares God's victory and worships him. Verse 1 reads, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphantly, triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is exalted. He's exalted because of the plagues prior to the exit, to the exodus. He's exalted because of his delivery there at the Red Sea. Moses goes on in verse 2, and he recognizes God as his strength. He says, the Lord is my strength, and my song has become my salvation. Israel faced the Red Sea. Again, if you can imagine, two million of us in front of a deep body of water, the Red Sea, nowhere to go. Behind us, we can hear and maybe see the dust from the chariots of the Egyptian army coming toward us. Moses and Israel recognized that it was God who delivered them, that he was their strength. They depended on him. Moses goes on and declares, this is my God. I will, I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. He recognizes that personal faith that he has. To each of us today, we come to a point where we have made the Lord our personal Savior. Israel also, as they sang this song, along with Moses, acknowledged the lineage of Yahweh worshipers, going back to the patriarchs. In verses 3 through 10, we see God portrayed as a warrior. The Lord is a man of war. A warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Floods stood up. In a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Notice, if you will, that the passage clearly communicates that there was a deep water incident here. That they were drowned. There are those who don't believe in the supernatural power of the Lord who say that Israel didn't face a deep sea. It was probably just a shallow Water, they went through the bog, through the, the swamp-like area. That's not what the verses say. Verse 4 says that Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk. The NIV says drowned. 
in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Chariots and bodies don't sink like a stone in shallow water and a bog. Verse 8 continues to confirm that. It says, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. That confirms, again, deep water deliverance. The word deeps almost always, consistently, in the Old Testament, refers to the ocean. So it's clear that God delivered Israel through a deep water experience, not a shallow body of water. As I think of this, I think of our own lives. God is a warrior. He's our warrior. He fights for us just as he fought for Israel. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 10.3 reminds us that though we live in a world, we do not wage war as the world does. It goes on and talks about submitting to the Lord, seeking him in prayer. Revelation 19, verse 11, the Apostle John is looking into heaven, and he sees there before him a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and he wages war. We see a theological truth in this passage that our world, our culture, doesn't really like to, to admit about God. If our culture and our people within it believe there is a God, they say he's a good God, he's a loving God, which is true. But too often, they want to make him into a softy, I think. Verse 7 says that in the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. That's NIV. Your burning anger. The ESV says fury. It consumes him like stubble. So these people who want to believe that God is just love need to see God in a more biblical way. I still remember some 30 years ago when I was first here in Chicago and and we were able to go to a YMCA, I believe it was on North and Clybourne, and, and inside the swimming pool area there was a sign painted, God is love. That eventually even came down too, but that was a mindset. And yet, the truth is that God is a just God. And, and, and these facts don't go contrary to God's majesty, but inherent aspects of who our God is. Our culture wants to see God as tolerant. Yes, God is love. And God is patient. He waited 80 years for Egypt, but eventually destroyed them. I think our culture is offended by this truth about who God is. Thirdly, as I look at this passage, I see God's sovereignty. First, his control over the winds and the water. We see his sovereignty. Secondly, we see his sovereignty in our lives 
is he ruled over nations and individuals. Verse 9 and 10, the Egyptians are talking and they arrogantly say, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind with your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. God simply blew the water. He just blew them away, causing them to sink like lead. The greatest army in the world at that time, Egypt, was no match for God. The truth is, is no army today, whether it's U.S., China, Russia, you go down the line, there's no God, or rather there's no army. There's a match for God. He rules. He rules in our lives. He rules over nations. He rules in kings' hearts. We must trust him. Our security rests in the Lord. Verses 11 and 12 summarize the implications of God's powerful act in the Red Sea. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. We see the uniqueness of the Lord here. Who is like you among the gods? There's none. He's supreme. Of course, the term here, gods, with a small letter, refers to the false gods of the Egyptians. As we've discussed before, behind these false gods were often demons, authorities that were demonic, that used their false beliefs. God was clear before the last plague. He says, I will go in to all of Egypt and I will, dest- I will, will destroy the firstborn of both man and beast. And he says, and I will execute judgment on the Egyptian gods and all his wonders and his power. He executed judgment on those gods. Again, we see God's Uniqueness, his supremacy. And it's almost like here that Moses can't hold it in. He can't hold in his praise and his worship. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Who is like you, O Lord? His greatness, his glory, his goodness are recognized by Israel as it sings of God's victory over their enemy at the Red Sea. Again, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. I mentioned earlier that this passage as a song is a standard for us as we look at worshiping the Lord because it talks about who he is and what he's done. Again, these words like majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, his sovereignty, his judgment, his supremacy. Who is like him? There's none. 
Again, we see throughout this passage his attributes. Compare that, if you will, with a song that was popular a few years ago. I'm not saying this is a bad song or couldn't be sung here, but listen to it. Jesus, we just want to thank you. Thank you for being so good. Jesus, we just want to praise you. Praise you for being so good. Jesus, we just want to tell you we love you for being so good. My first thoughts are, yes, Jesus is good. Instead of repeating these stanzas three times as the song did, maybe it should say why he's good. As we sing about him, as we praise him, it helps us to recall who he is. Yes, he is good. We need to remember who he is, his attributes, what he's done for us. In verse 13, we see a shift. The first half, looking back, verses 1 through 12, at God's victory over the Egyptians. As we move forward into 13 through 18, we see God's victory in a prophetic way. In verses 13 through 18, the future foes that Israel will face. Again, this is a song about Yahweh, to Yahweh, response for what he's done. Verses 14 through 16 read in the ESV, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have redeemed. We see the impact of the exodus and the event at the Red Sea on the nations before. I love how the NIV Reason, I want to quote just a little bit of it. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, there will be a still. It's a stone. The foes of Israel, as we see in this prophetic passage, were terrified. They were terrified. Can you imagine if you were on the other side of the Red Sea and you heard the stories of what happened? Would you be terrified? I think we would. I think we would. It's interesting. The nations are listed in the order that Israel would go through. First was uh, Philistia, and then Edom, and Moab, and finally, of course, Canaan, which was the promised land. The Moabites were probably the most easily frightened. Numbers 22 talks about Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. 
And Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. Edomites in Numbers 24, again we look into the future, what really happened, says a star will rise from Jacob, a scepter will emerge from Israel. It will crush the foreheads of the Moabite people, and Edom will be taken over. And finally, the Canaanites. Panic set in early. If you remember Joshua, when Moses had moved on, passed on, Joshua had taken over. They were ready to go into the promised land. They sent in spies. And they talked with Rahab, the prostitute. And she says, I know the Lord has given you this land. We're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. Our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight. We see again the power of what God did. We see a play on the words in, in verses 5 and 16. In verse 5, the Egyptian army is said to have sunk like a stone. In verse 16, it says that the terrified Canaanites would be as still as a stone. Just as God enabled the Israelites to go through the Red Sea, he enabled them also to go through their enemies in the new land. We see a biblical truth also in verses 13 and 17, where it's very clear that God calls out his people of where they are, and he guides them to live in his presence in a new land. Verse 13 in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of the inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, your hands established. I noticed as I was reading and studying different versions talk about the Israelites being either purchased or bought or redeemed. And that's the beginning process, right, of God's people were purchased, were bought. The same is true for us as believers. Christ bought us. He purchased us. He redeemed us. And we too, even though we live in the world, we're called out of this world. We look forward to living with God in his presence in eternity in heaven. But as we go through this life, we depend on his strength, knowing that he is our Lord and Savior. I, I, I love it. I, I think of Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to a completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, 18 talks about, out of his deep love, he will lead his people whom he has redeemed into his holy dwelling place. And it says, the Lord reigns forever and ever. When we get up in the mornings, do we think about the fact that the Lord reigns? He reigns now. He'll reign in eternity. He'll reign forever and ever and ever. And I'm reminded of the passage that talks about one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ 
is Lord. Verses 19 and 20 turn from poetry to prose and summarize the story. It says, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. That's our God, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Verses 20 and 21, we see the leadership of, of Miriam, Aaron, Moses' sister. It talks about the fact that she took up her tambourine and she led the women as they responded using the same, singing the same song. It says, Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, this song is important. It serves as a way for the nation of Israel to worship God. It is also a means to record it because they didn't write a lot of things down then. It's also a way to recall God's deliverance of his people. It directed Israel's attention to God, to the character of God. It encouraged Israel to put their faith and trust and confidence in God for future protection as they got ready to go into the land promised to them. It should remind us that our security and our hope rest in who God is, in his greatness and his glory. His goodness. Ultimately, we trust a man based on his character, right? How many of us know people who are wonderfully skilled? You name any, any skills related thing. We're not going, to, though, to bring them into our home if they're an excellent plumber or carpenter or cabinet maker. If they if they have a reputation for not doing work, if they have a reputation for doing poor work. See, we depend on a man or a woman's character. We see in this passage that God is a God whom we can trust. And God is the same God in the New Testament that he was in the Old Testament because he never changes. Therefore, we can have hope and confidence in God's protection and provision for us. It should remind us that he is dependable because he never changes. Initially, as I've been studying this passage the last couple of weeks, I was going to stop just and just do the song, which could have been fine, but as I was going through the passage... As I studied and as I prayed, I sensed the Lord encouraging me to add four verses that are there at the end. Four verses. And here we read that after traveling three days from the Red Sea, they found no water. They became anxious. And when they came to the oasis of Mara, the water was too bitter to drink. The people complained and turned against Moses demanding 
What are we going to drink? And Moses cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water. And this made water good to drink. And after leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Now, can you imagine the Israelites? You're there, okay? You've just seen God's victory. You walk through on dry ground, on the ground that was covered with water before. You get across, and then you look back, and you see the waters coming in on the Egyptians. What victory your God has provided. You rejoice. And then you travel for three days. I'm sure they carried some water with them. But three days, you have no water as far as seeing new water. And then you come to Mara, this oasis, and there's water, and you taste it, but it's too bitter to drink. What's your response? Israel's first response was to turn against Moses. Their joy turned to anger and to bitterness from Moses leading them there. How could he have messed up so much? How could he have led them to this place? Of course, Moses cried out to God, and God provided the water to be sweet. It was another test for Israel to trust God. They failed the test. They failed the test. How easy is it for us to blame others around us as they blamed Moses? Maybe it's your boss at work. Maybe it's your wife or your husband. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your neighbor. Isn't it easy for us to place the blame on someone else just as Israel placed the blame on Moses instead of looking to God? How often do we discern that God is using individuals in our lives, events, to get our attention? Israel failed to trust God after he had just delivered them in a powerful way, in a wonderful way. He would proven he could handle water. I mean, think about it. He opened the waters up for them to walk through. He had them come back down on the Egyptians. He handled water very well. You'd think maybe that Israel could trust God with water at Marah. Right? But maybe we shouldn't look down on Israel too quickly. Because if we're honest, we too fail to trust God after he's provided for us over and over in wonderful ways. We too can gather here on Sunday mornings and we can sing songs of praise and worship to our Lord. And mean it. But during the week, when some twist comes along that we aren't expecting, we blame someone else. We fail sometimes to look 
to the Lord. Not only did Israel fail to see this bitter water at Marah as being a spiritual issue, they, they blamed Moses. You know, if you go back and look at the passage before the Red Sea, it says that Israel cried out to the Lord for help. But here at Marah, they cried out to Moses. They cried out to Moses. It's easy for us too, isn't it, in the midst of life, to look for secular ways to handle things. We know that he's our salvation and he's our hope in the midst of life spiritually, but sometimes we fail to, to remember that all these issues play into our lives. Well, Israel failed to remember that God promised to bring them into the promised land a land where his presence would be. And if he's going to bring them into the promised land, then that means that he provide for all things along the way. God has promised to bring us into eternity with him. He's promised that he'll keep us and provide for us along the way. We've all witnessed God's provision. We need to remember that every obstacle that comes our way can be overcome by God. Romans 5, verses 2 through 5, says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Our joy should remain no matter what our circumstances are. You know and I know that as we trust God for the hard things in life, we get to know Him better. It's through these difficulties, it's through these twists and turns that life throws at us. As we trust God, we see his provision. We see his faithfulness. And we grow in our faith. Remember, remember what God has done for you. Recall, be thankful, and sing his praises. Remember that God has a purpose and a plan for each of our lives. He's developing us. This prepares us, again, for those twists and turns that come our way that, that we're totally unexpecting. This song and this passage serves to remind us that our security and our hope are dependent on God, on his character. We've seen his greatness, we've seen his glory, his goodness, and his faithfulness in our lives. And we could cry out, we can sing, along with Moses and Israel, we can say, I will sing to the Lord because of his glory and his goodness and his greatness. Well, let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this song. Father, help us.